let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, there is more news in the troubling saga of John Falcicchio, the top mayoral aide who abruptly left his job this spring. Meanwhile, a draft budget bill was unveiled by Republicans this week in Congress. It focuses on some really important stuff, like making sure D.C. doesn't ban right turns on red, among other things not traditionally subject to federal legislation. And in less controversial controversies, there's an app that you can use to borrow someone's pool, an app that is making some pool owners' neighbors pretty unhappy. Junette Deal from Axios DC and CityCast contributor Dan Reed are here to swim through the week with me. Sorry. Today is Friday, June 23rd. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Dan, Junaid, welcome. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. All right, so Junaid, you you cover uh, City Hall, among other things, for Axios DC, and you have been all over the story of John Falcicchio, who was the most powerful and influential aide to the mayor until one day in the spring he abruptly left and she tersely accepted his resignation. It has since come out that he was the subject of an investigation into workplace sexual harassment. There's news on that this week. You have been covering it. Can you tell us? Yeah, Falchikia was this very powerful bureaucrat. He was like a shadow mayor, I've been told. He was he was kind of like this municipal version of Henry Kissinger because he had these two very powerful jobs. He was chief of staff and he was a deputy mayor for economic development. And a summary of an investigation found that he sexually harassed an employee in D.C. government. There's a second complaint that's still ongoing, an investigation into that. The mayor finally spoke out this week about the allegation and the investigation, said she was devastated by them. And this was such an important figure for her administration in a third term. And it's it's raising all sorts of questions about what was the culture in the deputy mayor for economic development's office? What other workplace issues might there be? And should we have an independent investigation? This investigation was led by the mayor's legal counsel. I mean, it's the legal counsel investigating the former chief of staff. So eight council members want an independent investigation now. And this this isn't really going away anytime soon, it seems. The mayor finally said something about this. Up to now, you know, there was the sort of unexplained resignation. Then news came out about this investigation. When they finally had something to share with the public, they shared it on a Saturday night, Saturday night of a holiday weekend. For those old people who still get the print uh, Washington Post, it wound up on the front page. I suspect that the Saturday night timing and the front page were not coincidental. I think it was a like, oh, you want to bury this, do you? Um, but her behavior on this has been weird because 
Look, she certainly wouldn't be the first person who was let down by a close associate and friend who was doing things she didn't like that she didn't know about. She uh, didn't have to act like a, someone who was trying to bury this news. That didn't do anything to allay suspicions that she's been tolerating stuff, which is, I think is one of the reasons why members of the council are bucking for an independent investigation. It was pretty astonishing. I mean, this was posted, the summary was posted Saturday quietly. I was tipped off about it. And then it was finally, I guess, emailed to the press formally at around 11 p.m. And I had asked earlier this week, how do we trust this investigation, given that from the start, the mayor really sort of at best misled about what Felchicchio was leaving government for. It was said he was leaving for the private sector, which is learned was very different from the story um, that he was under investigation and that this was posted on such a bad, uh, you know, moment um, sort of to maybe bury it. Um, and they said it's been such a thorough investigation. They've done conducted hours, which is all true, I think. But um, council members do want an independent investigation. And it's not really clear to me what the mechanism for that would be. Can the council just pass a law? Could it be retroactive in that case? I spoke to council member Brianne Nadeau, and she kind of even said, I don't actually know if we can do an independent investigation. I think that, that people know, uh, I mean, anyone who's a journalist knows that institutions can't investigate themselves. And that's true whether you're talking about the Major League Baseball or the Catholic Church or the Army or whoever. There's just too much incentive to like protect your own, to this is a guy who's been in the trenches with us. We, you know, he may have screwed up, but we don't want to crucify him. That's just the logic of institutions. And there's got to be a way to get someone from outside to hire them to say, you know, come in. We're not going to, you know, you don't know any of the people here. You are not going to be uh, biased. Um, do your worst. Right. And, you know, why doesn't the mayor do that, I guess, right? There's a second investigation going now. You could even say, throw in there the fact that they've got sort of, I think, one official running this investigation. They could use some more help, it seems like. So, um, you know, why not throw in a, a third party there? Well, can I get you to answer the, the question of why didn't the mayor do that? You've, you've watched this mayor for quite a long time. You're aware of her what her political instincts are. Well, well, she said she was following the sort of policy that this, 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 the city has, which is for sexual harassment, that this is the process that takes place in writing, basically. Now, I don't think that accounts for or anticipated someone like John Felchicchio, who was the most powerful bureaucrat in D.C., committing sexual harassment and then having to be investigated by his own sort of, you know, in, in some ways, colleagues, right? So I don't know why the mayor didn't anticipate having a third party come in here. I think they'll just say, you know, they're doing such a thorough investigation. And from all accounts, that seems true. But I mean, right, like institutions generally can't investigate themselves. And people who have other reason to butt heads with you, like the legislature, if you are the executive, they are not necessarily going to just take your word for it and do a charitable interpretation of anything you do. They're going to probably do the least charitable possible interpretation of anything you do. She must have anticipated that. Uh, why not uh, get ahead of it? I mean, I'm just like surprised that it took so long to say this obvious thing of, I am really bummed out that my friend seems to have done this. I mean, there's some obvious missteps here, right? I mean, from the get-go, from the 
announcement, like I said, of him leaving the government for private sector when an investigation had been launched seven days prior by that point in March. This mayor is going to have an even more difficult time in her third term, given the fact that she's not really replaced Velchikio. There's a police chief search ongoing. There are members of her cabinet, longtime members leaving, and she's always kept such a small circle of advisors and friends. How do you replace that so early on in a third term? It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. All right. So turning from the uh, local to the national, uh, these are issues of crucial national import that we are about to discuss because they are the subject of action in the United States Congress. Yes, that's right. Uh, I am introducing a segment on uh, congressional D.C. meddling. And I realize there's a danger of sounding like a bunch of yokels here because there's nothing we uh, Washington uh, locals, people who follow city politics, do better than complain about Congress. But in this case, holy smokes, uh, Martin Ostermule from uh, WAMU and DCist has a piece this week about a draft budget proposal that, among other things, it would uh, prevent D.C. from banning uh, right turns on red. It would limit uh, DC from having uh, traffic cameras that can issue tickets. It obviously will prevent DC from uh, fully legalizing cannabis and uh, continue to prevent DC from having public funding for abortion services. But it is this kind of cringy, embarrassing, granular meddling that is uh, actively harmful depending on your policy point of view, to D.C., not just uh, trying to do sort of dumb, symbolic stuff. And uh, Martin notes that it, it kind of harkens back to uh, D.C. used to have this uh, taxicab zone system. The capital was the very middle of the zone. So it was the, the, the epicenter of the cheapest rides that Congress uh, kept D.C. from changing to a meter system for years and years and years. But this is just, I can't imagine that any of these people's constituents sent them up there to screw around with like right turns on red in a city where they don't even live. Well, I think everyone knows that when they said drain the swamp, what they were talking about was was traffic policy, right? <laughs> Dan, you are like a transit nerd. Um, is like turning right on red a, a, a red-blue uh, culture war issue? Is there, a, is there an ideological valence to that? A teeny bit insofar as you know, Republicans 
usually at like the state or local level, have tried to turn transportation into a cultural issue. In North Carolina, for example, uh, state Republicans uh, passed a law that basically prohibited uh, local cities and counties from spending money on light rail. Uh, so there's there's like a teeny tiny precedent for this. And DC's like DC's moves towards ending right turns on red was done in the name of pedestrian safety, right? Right. And if you perceive this as taking away the sovereignty of car drivers to drive really fast and however they'd like to drive, then this is just big government run amok, I I guess. <laughs> but wait, what about traffic cameras? What's the ideological deal there? I thought that um, the Law and Order Party liked uh, people following law. Me too. I mean, I think we we can't uh, discount that some of this is just spite, right? <laughs> so there, there's no other like secret meaning of of uh, of traffic cameras. Well, red states do tend to have less automated traffic enforcement, maybe because of privacy concerns or just spending concerns, right? You know, in Virginia, for example you are only allowed to do things like traffic cameras or red light cameras near schools, I think, like because of perhaps resistance to allowing it from more conservative parts of the state. So just to be clear, these are the beginning of a budget process is a time of a lot of kooky proposals. And uh, oftentimes they, uh, they do not make it to the end of a budget process. Uh, on the other hand, when it comes time to horse trading, as we know from history, it's very easy for the Democrats to kind of give up the stupid thing about DC because in the grand scheme of things it matters less than like you know gutting the hell out of social spending and so on. Obama famously and uh, kind of horrifically to my taste uh gave away public funding for abortion in DC to Boehner during one of their government shutdown budget negotiations. So uh, I can't imagine that any a Democratic president or even legislative leader is going to go to the mat about right turns on red in the District of Columbia. I don't know, it's just sort of a cringy, cringy, cringy moment. It's disappointing. And it shows, I think, the ways that congressional Republicans are willing to use D.C. as like a foil for their own things and the ways that Democrats aren't always willing to step up, whether it's this or, or any other issue. It's frustrating. Jeanette, you've been covering the Hill and D.C.'s interactions some. What do you make of the budget proposal and the odds for it? The odds of any of this happening, I guess, are more so will Democrats trade away something D.C. has to, to get a budget deal finally. I mean, what I found funny, actually, or maybe just sad, is that banning traffic camera tickets could blow up DC's whole budget because DC decided to sort of balance their budget on future traffic camera revenue, uh, which was kind of this like unusual attempt to balance the future budget that left some council members wondering too, if this is really a good idea. And Martin at WAMU points out that this could actually bust up the whole balanced budget if DC suddenly can't issue traffic camera tickets. Now, whether that happens, like it's kind of up to the Senate, I guess, to protect DC's traffic cameras or it's uh, banning right turns on red. It's ironic because, you know, the party of small government, you think traditionally likes to defer decision making to like the smallest unit possible. But we've seen in other states that this is sort of a bigger version of Republicans at the state level telling local cities and towns that they can't like 
ban plastic bags, for instance, right? And so that same mentality is just coming here to America's favorite city to hate. Do you know whether this legislation says anything about the app called Swimply? Thankfully, no. While this is a national product, it has uh, inexplicably come a very, very local issue here in the D.C. area. So if you're familiar with Airbnb, right, people can use it to rent a room in their house or rent a little suite or what have you. There's another group of apps that take it to an even more granular level. Uh, There's one called SniffSpot, which allows you to rent your backyard out to people maybe who have a dog and they don't have a place for their dog to run around. Or Swimply, which is an app that lets you rent out your swimming pool to people who would like to rent your swimming pool for a couple of hours. And as it turns out, the f- what maybe the first place in the United States to regulate the use of these apps is Montgomery County in Maryland. And this has become an issue in part because, like, you know, in the suburbs, people tend to have big houses and big yards and swimming pools. And sometimes they might want to get use out of these things they're not always using. And there are a lot of folks like me who do not happen to have a yard or a swimming pool on my property uh, who find these apps kind of useful. What do you think of the regulation, Dan? So uh, Montgomery County has a bill out right now that would basically regulate how people can rent these things out. It would require them to register the county, same way as you would if you were renting out like an apartment, and pay a fee. And one of the reasonings behind it is that neighbors have been big mad about Swimply in particular. Uh, One Chevy Chase resident wrote to the county in testimony that our entire block has been disturbed. It is, for all intents and purposes, like having a pool club on the street. So this is to say somebody like rented someone else's pool, threw a big party, invited all their friends, made noise, and disturbed people. It could be. It also could be like literally one person in a swimming pool. People love to find reasons to be upset. <laughs> and of course, Chevy Chase famously, there are no swim clubs. So, you know, this is not a thing people are accustomed to. Speaking of which, swim clubs are expensive, right? You know, I looked at some of those swim clubs in the county and they can range, you know, to get started if you're a family, anywhere from $900 for the season to $3,000. Whereas with Swimply, you can rent a swimming pool for like $60 or $70 an hour. So you could have a pool party just like that. Yeah, or you could just uh, hang out in this one I found that's a luxury Moroccan oasis with some cool llama floaties uh, all by yourself. But this is like, I mean, DC has had stuff around this too, where like these new sharing apps that, you know, technically that you're just having a private party and these are your guests are a thing that jurisdictions haven't quite regulated, that it's not quite clear how they would but that leave a lot of neighbors irritated about the the noise of the party next door or the pool party next door or the people coming in and out of your apartment with the code, of your apartment building with the code. Is there any place in this region or anywhere else that seems to be doing the kind of balancing of the new app versus the interests and upsetness of neighbors well? Well, it's hard to say, right? There have been a number of regulations in different cities about Airbnb, for example, like restricting how many days out of the year you can rent something out, requiring licensure for them. That actually are some of the restrictions that County Executive Mark Elrich wants to add to the bill. For instance, uh, restricting how many days a year you can rent out your swimming pool or restricting what hours you can rent your swimming pool during the day. And... This is sort of uncharted territory, as it were. I think the more people want to share parts of their property, the more we're going to find out that people are perhaps a little unaccustomed to this. Particularly like suburban places like big houses and big yards. We create all these private amenities for ourselves so we don't have to share them. And now people want to share their stuff. 
I think for a lot of the folks who are upset about this kind of reflects an aesthetic they're not comfortable with. You know, the executive called this the commercialization of residential homes. Is that really what renting a swimming pool out is? Or is it just people enjoying the swimming pool who just happen not to live in that house? But this was also the subject of a, I think, examiner op-ed about liberal nimbyism. Yeah. uh, Speaking of the right, right? Uh, (laughs) This has been uh, an opportunity for a columnist with the Washington Examiner to point out the sort of uh, what he calls, considers hypocrisy between folks in Montgomery County who boast about how welcoming and tolerant they are, but can't abide the idea of someone who can't afford to join a private swim club uh, using a private swimming pool in their neighborhood. He says, consumers love Swimply, as do countless homeowners with private property they wish to share. Let the people swim. But isn't it also that that like this is perfectly consistent in that uh, places like Montgomery County, like the district uh, that tend to be left in their politics are also places that have a lot more regulations. And uh, it's no surprise that people's instinct would be to regulate uh, private pools. Yeah, it's not surprising, right? And also swimming pools, and I say this as someone who cannot swim, are dangerous, right? We probably do want someone making sure that people are safe when they rent a stranger swimming pool. All right. Well, listen, if there is a Swimply for Swim Lessons, uh, Dan Reed ought to sign up for that. Yeah, let me know if you hear about one. (laughs) All right. So it is time for our Friday DC Life Hack of the Week. Today's DC Life Hack comes from Nicole Schaller, the deputy editor of District Frey. We had her on the show earlier this week to break down the summer's cultural festivals and dole out tips for navigating them. And she also shared this tip about exploring D.C. generally. I know embassy open houses were was huge this year. I mean, they have it every year annually, and it was packed and people couldn't get in. There was apparently really long lines. But I think most people don't realize is that a lot of countries have free events throughout the whole year. Sweden's a big one. Argentina, Spain, Italy, and France host at least like monthly free events. It seems intimidating to enter into a into an embassy, but sometimes it's worthwhile and then you don't have to wait for the lines when the annual one comes around. So everyone go check out the embassy's websites for cool free events. Dan Reed, Junate Deal, thank you so much for being here, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Come back soon. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, issue a press release and tell everyone about it. But please don't do it late on a Saturday night. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Bye.